This is the Employee Experience and Education Podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brandstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classrooms. On this episode, we'll speak with Mike Kleba, international speaker, author, artist, entrepreneur, and teacher. Today, Mike will share why he's bucking a current trend in education, what is guaranteed to make you well up with tears, and what is at the heart of the future of happiness in our culture. All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited about the conversation learn about the things you're doing um, as a teacher. It's fact, this is one of our unique conversations in that we're talking to a current educator and not a former educator. So do you mind by talking a little bit about yourself personally and professionally? And then why did you decide to become an educator? Uh, sure. Uh, first of all, Eric, it's really great to join you here today. Um, I am a, a public school teacher for more than 20 years, actually. I'm, I'm moving up on my 23rd year. And while I've left the classroom a couple times to do some things, I stopped and got a master's degree in theater and you know worked as an actor and director for a little while. And then I also left the, the classroom for a, a year to run a tech company that I'd been working at, consulting at for a couple of years. Aside from that, I've been unbroken in a public school classroom. That entire time, uh, I teach ninth grade English uh, literature right now. It's an honors class. I also teach a 12th grade film class, and I do that in conjunction with Stony Brook University. It's a co-seated class, so my students um, are actually in the same class that uh, college freshmen are in, and that's really great. We watch films and talk about it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, to the question of why did I become an educator, you know, I think it was probably in, in probably, it was probably 10th grade that it began to occur to me that there were some people who did work, um, the adults that I was watching, um, that really had a profound impact on others. Um, and I had this fantastic teacher, and it's a pretty classic story. You know, he, he really showed me um, the power of influence on a very practical, um, understandable way for a 10th grader, right? I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania in the suburbs, so um, kind of rural suburbs. And, and I remember thinking, now that looks like a job that I could have some impact in. Since then, Eric, I have, um, I've gotten to work in schools around the country and around the world, working with teachers, working with principals, working with students. And I've come to find something that I know is true, and I love saying it out loud. Um, it's the most important job in the world. I call it the world's other oldest profession. I call it the profession inside all professions. Um, it is, uh, I think, kind of without a doubt, the most important job anybody can do. And I love doing it, man. It's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Like I said, first time speaking with a current educator. And what we're hearing in the market, in, in public media, is that teaching is so hard and everybody is leaving. What, what's keeping you in education? So you're the flip of the story, which is you've chosen, you've, you've even left to do some pretty amazing things. You've come back. What keeps pulling you back to stay an educator? Well, I mean, there's, there's probably two prongs to this. The first one is, you know, straight up service. You know, I, uh, I was raised a certain way. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. I, uh, I, I learned growing up that we're all here um, in some sort of relationship with other people. And the Becoming a teacher for me, I tell my students this, it's, it's, I feel like on some level it's a duty to me that I believe in very deeply. Everybody that, we, that you know currently, everybody you know, Eric, and everybody who's listening out there has been 
um, profoundly impacted by the education that they experienced. I mean, when, if we have to kind of dial into one single um, factor in a person's life that does not directly connect to, you know, to whom they were born, right? The, the family, the, what we call the SES, the socioeconomic status of their family. The next most important variable is education. And to me, working in it, it's a service thing. The second thing is, and this is just the deal, I, I get so much out of it. You know, I, I uh, yeah, it's hard and it's harder than it's ever been without a doubt. It's, it, it, it sucks, man. It's really been hard. Um, the last few years in particular, um, have have driven things home to me, and I'm fortunate. I, I work on the North Shore of Long Island. Um, we have a relatively steady tax base. Um, you know, we have a relatively low crime um, rate here. You know, so I'm I'm pretty fortunate. But even here, we've got attrition happening, and we've got teachers who are leaving, and and I know why. Um, there's never been more demanded from teachers. We are meant to be on 24 seven. Um, we're basically not thanked outside of gift cards and, and crumb cake. And that's if you're lucky. Um, you know, people find out you're a teacher and you definitely get the vibe that it's kind of a less than thing. For me, um, I don't know. I, I look at all that and I think, yeah, but I, I'm in thousands of people's lives. You know, I, I have an impact on a lot of people and it, I get out of bed. I jump out of bed, man. I, and I know, I know a handful of teachers who are like me. And all these years in, I still can't believe I get to do this job. I think it's cool. And, uh, and I never doubt whether or not I've got purpose and meaning, you know, and that's, that's pretty priceless the older I get. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And it's, it, it goes back to kind of who you are as a person, this idea of serving. And you say thousands of people, like you're not exaggerating, you are impacting thousands of people. And then there's a domino effect from that. So the people that you influence, they go back and they think, man, that Mr. It's Kleba, right? Mr. Kleba. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, not Kleba, but Kleba. So Mr. Yep. Kleba, he's the one that made me excited to come to school. He's the one that makes me jump out of bed and get ready for school and be excited for school. And then that impacts who they are as people, as whatever their, their role is as a parent, as a worker, as a student. So like the domino effects just keep going on until the point in which you can say, okay, I've impacted, you know, thousands and tens and thousands of people just from being a, a happy person, from enjoying your job, from getting that, that internal satisfaction from the work you're doing on a daily basis. Here, here, and I appreciate that shout. I also just want to say two, two pieces. I think a person's personality has a lot to do with it. I think that's true in every job, by the way. I think when you talk to people in um, corporate tech, you talk to people in the military, you talk to, I mean, I'm a big sports fan and my, uh, my Philadelphia teams are doing really well. Shout to shout to my Philly teams. Even the Flyers are undefeated right now. It doesn't make any sense. People in Philadelphia are walking around going like, "What's when's the shoe going to drop?" But but you know, in sports, uh, who your coach is and who your fellow players are, it really matters personality wise. But I find that there is some sort of weird uh, depreciation. I'm not saying you're doing this, but I'm saying I find that people will say, "Well, it's your personality that makes you you know suited to be a teacher." I'm like, well. Show me a job where personality doesn't matter. I mean, even an awesome thoracic surgeon, if she isn't nice to be around, I promise you there are people who are not doing as good work as they could because they got to work with Dr. So-and-so today. So, you know, and that's part of my consulting that I do when I work with schools and I work and I've, I've worked in the corporate space when I work with teams. I mean, I start with, listen, all leadership is sweaty and personal and, and our relationships and our personalities. These aren't extra things. These things we call soft skills. They're the most important skills that exist outside the fundamental compa- 
you know, competencies of your job. So I appreciate the chance to, to, to talk about that. And as for the, uh, the, the generations of people that we get to impact, yeah, man, that's the part that really grounds me sometimes when on my worst day I go, you know what, dude, they're going to talk about me. 50 years from now. And they will. There'll be a kid somewhere who will. And who gets to say that? You know, who gets to say that? It's cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So you and Ryan O'Hare wrote a, a fascinating book, Otherful, How to Change the World and Your School Through Other People. I'm curious, what was happening in your life during that time to make you say, I need to write a book to help other school leaders? Uh, so I think, you know, we, we addressed this at the beginning of the book, but a number of meetings that I sat in on where I'm surrounded by, you know, terrific professionals in this field. And I, I can't believe how um, depressing the level of discourse is about what we're doing. <laughs> you know, it kind of started there. It started with like a, like a basic frustration of like, hold it, we're bringing new teachers into this situation. We're bringing in new recruits and they are sitting through this. Like, how is that possible? And then, then it started to go from there. It started, I started to think a little bit about, and Ryan and I started to think a little bit about how meaningful leadership is at certain junctures in every system. So you've got education's one. I, I've talked about medicine. We've talked about, uh, you know, military industrial complex. Talk about tech. Talk about healthcare. There are very important um, jobs that, that appear in the middle management, right? You've got, you know, we all draw our minds to the top level. We love the C level. We love the presidents. We love the coaches. We love the people at the top, but where so much of what happens in a system, like what it, who impacts that the most are these kind of what we sometimes call middle managers. I call them leaders. I call them, you know, you know, it's the, it's the sergeants. We love to use the military as an analogy. It's the sergeants, it's the lieutenants, it's the captains, it's the majors. That's where the culture gets built. And so Ryan and I, we just got really excited about it. We started studying what was happening in our lives as we were watching some leaders who maybe we thought weren't maybe doing as well as we thought they could and what would happen if they did. And then we just started studying voraciously everywhere. We just we started reading leadership books, and it took us about ten years to uh, collate our our thinking and to formalize this framework in in Otherful. And we're still there, man. We're we're writing our next book now, um, and uh, and we're we're selling books. It's been such a great fall. It's been such a great summer. Word of mouth is really going with this book, and uh, yeah, and it's been fun. So what, what really strikes me, it's not about instructional leadership. It's not about setting up PLCs. It's not about scheduling. It's about the people in your school. So why, as you had this focus, why not focus on the operation of school? Because that's where a lot of leaders go. A lot, and I myself, I'm a former principal. The number of times I sat in my, during the school day, trying to figure out NWEA schedules and standardized testing and parents coming in, like, I was, unfortunately, as I reflect back, I spent a lot of time thinking about the pragmatic part of school, not the people part of school. I know my people suffered as a result. Is that kind of why you went down this path? Yeah, beautifully put. And uh, shout to you for your uh, service as a principal. It's the single toughest job in the game, buddy. I mean, it really is. And 
I've been looking, I've been studying this for, like I said, about a decade and there's nothing harder. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's exactly that. There's almost no one talking about people um, in the schools. I mean, when we do, we talk about it entirely on like, oh, people are leaving or it's a hard job or you're such a good person for doing that. I couldn't do it. The most, uh, I think the favorite thing that people say, oh, you know, like, God bless you. I mean, that you can do that. You know, you, you, know, you, you were in the gig. That's what you heard too. Um, you know, I, I could not stand to be around those kids that long or whatever. Um, but the reality is, is that the relationship between the people at work um, it's no different than the relationship between like, for instance, right now, the Philadelphia Phillies, you know, I'm listening to uh, Alex Rodriguez last night um, and he's breaking down the, the Yankees game and he's talking about how excited he is to watch guys in the dugout. And he's talking about how what he looks for when he's looking for winning teams is the chatter in the dugout, you know, and this is Alex Rodriguez, right? This is a guy who knows a thing or two about baseball and, and, that's something that Ryan and I like to talk about when we're talking to school leaders. You know, we've been doing a lot of work with uh, with principals and, and with superintendent teams over the last year. And we're always like, you know, what's the temperature? How do you guys feel about each other? Do you know about each other's lives? Do you know about each other's kids? Do you, you know, you know, and and what we find is that people are so hungry to talk about it because they know, yeah, the, the, the exigencies of the job require you to attend to a lot of things. You have to attend to, you know, the law. You have to attend to these families. You've got to attend to your board of ed, your fiduciary responsibility to taxpayers. All of that stuff is really important. But underneath it all is do we trust each other here on this team? Because these people are in a foxhole. You know, when you are a principal, you are in a fight for your life. I mean, you are, your cortisol levels are up. You've got tension. You've got stress. How do I feel about the people I'm working with? And th the best part about writing this book is the chance to actually test some of our hypotheses, which are based on a lot of our research and our practice, and seeing a lot of things bear out. Like hearing teams say, oh my gosh, we had a totally different year because we actually made a date to all have dinner once a month. And they go to a diner and the whole principal team, they go or they go to a bar and drink and talk to each other, you know, if that's something that they do. And it's changed like the culture of the school because they're spending time together and listening to each other and, and like suffering through life together and sharing stories, you know. So, yeah, that was that was the thing. We felt like there was a paucity of literature on it and we wanted to dive into it. And I, for some reason, I, I hesitated to show that part of myself as an administrator. And I think a lot of it is, you know, there's there's such this professionalism that comes in education. And I, I was young as an administrator. I wanted to make sure, you know, I'm, I'm a professional person. And I was, I was very careful about Facebook. I didn't want to post private things about myself because that's a professional part of me. But I think back, like, how many great conversations did I miss with my people because I wasn't on Facebook, because I didn't have dinner. I didn't go to the Euchre card games that they had because I was the administrator. I was the professional one. And I didn't want to mix those two things around. If I can go back and do that differently, I would do that all day long. And beautiful thinking on that, Eric. I'd love to hear you externalize that a little bit. And I'm sure that there's some folks who are listening who who benefit from you talking like that. You know, when I when I look at the um, the the map of why so many administrators basically uh, stay in their armor, right? And they and they stay in their suits, and they they're very careful about their language you know, and how they speak to people. I think there's two big reasons. The first one is we, we hope we hold in our minds this idea that teachers truly should be beyond reproach. We should be in the book, we say knights of the realm, 
Like we, we should truly be the best of the best. We should hold ourselves to a higher standard. I'm going to say some other jobs that are supposed to hold, hold themselves to high standards. And we're going to giggle when I say it. Politicians, right? Like it's like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys hold themselves to a high standard until they get caught. Right. And then we could go, we could go through the whole list. I mean, who are we supposed to respect in this world? And I think we have a deep, very, very like uninterrogated uh, part of all of us when we think about school that people who are teachers, people who are principals, they should be as close to flawless as possible. And I think when people take on the job of leading a school, they take that very seriously. It's not a joke. Like, no, I'm I'm not going to swear. I'm always going to wear a suit. My tie is always going to be up to the buttons, except for maybe at the end of the day and I'll loosen it. And and there'll be nothing better than a secretary who's leaving saying, oh, you know, like um, Dr. B, looks like you unloosened your tie getting wild. And you'll joke and you'll say, well, you know, it was kind of a long day because we want to be strong. And then I think the second thing is we're just held to a high standard because any mistake you make in the gig could be the end of your career. And it's it, that's how it is in education. I think a lot of administrators walk around going, oh, my goodness, uh, I am one mistake away from having to move and start over. Um, and I know a lot of principals feel that way because, you know, the nearby school districts will hear about the mistake you made as well. So it's a tough gig, man. Admin is very hard. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I love a book like yours that's so focused on what are the things that school leaders can actually do to improve the culture, to improve the relationships, the connectivity within schools. I know one of the big parts of your book, and this is the very beginning chapter, is the idea of artificial versus natural accountability. Mm. Can you explain that to everybody? What, what's it mean to have artificial accountability versus natural accountability? So this is a framework that um, we built out of uh, some of Ryan's work in his dissertation. Um, the, the concept is simple. It's ancient. It's going to make sense to all your listeners. And it goes like this. All of us operate accountable to ourselves. Like you're going to go out and get something to eat later, or you'll go home and make some food and you'll choose something to make or choose something to eat. You're doing that entirely based on your own concept of like what you want. All of the decisions that you make, you're holding yourself accountable to. Now I choose something like food because you're like, how is there any accountability to food? Well, actually you've got to feed yourself well. And for some some of your listeners, they're thinking a lot about their food. They think about it every day. They're counting calories. They're maybe counting how many sugar, how much sugar they can have, um, what their salt intake is. That's you being accountable to yourself. You're taking care of your body. Um, natural accountability also plays into how you like to do things. You know, um, you are running a podcast. I have no idea why you're doing it, but you have a reason for it, right? I mean, I can make some guesses, right? But you have your reasons and you're driven by it. And it's not for anybody else. Even if you get paid something, right? Even if you get remuneration or anything in kind, you're still doing it on some level for yourself. Okay, so artificial accountability is anything you do where you're like, if I weren't getting paid or if there wasn't threat <laughs> of some sort of punishment, I would do it a different way, but I'm doing it this way because either I'm getting paid or if I don't do it, I'm going to get in trouble. And the reason why we lay that out, again, it's ancient, it makes obvious sense, is that a lot of what school is based on is that artificial accountability works and that it works better than anything else. And, and when we invite people to look at that, we say, I mean, think about grading. Think about all, think, just think about the system itself and then think about how our hierarchies are built in schools where we have got different titles. You know, if you're higher than me in the title structure, let's not talk about grades for a moment. Let's just talk about teachers and, and, and uh, administrators. If you're higher than me in the, in, the, in the structure, I can 
then you can tell me what to do and I got to do it. If I don't do it, we're going to have a problem. You could make my life more painful. You could change my schedule next year and never admit that that's why you did it. You could pack my classes with more kids and never admit that that is kind of how it went. You know, like, and I know that. So I'm like, oh, I got to watch out what this person might do to me. And what that does is it creates a system of a lot of resentment and shame and fear. And they, these are toxic. They just make systems fall apart. So we start there because um, a lot of us, uh, I think, in schools assume everybody agrees that artificial accountability works. What we say is actually, if you're not around and you're holding me to artificial accountability, as soon as you're gone, I'm going to do whatever I want. And that's a lot of teaching in schools right now. We have very little educational leadership, very little pedagogical leadership in schools happening anywhere because we're only using carrots and sticks. And the thing is, natural accountability allows people to lean into how all of us are actually driven to do certain things. And if I can work with someone on what they care about, I'm going to have a much better chance of influencing them rather than trying to force them or bribe them into doing what I want. So that's the basic idea. And the, the conversations with former teachers have been that so far. And that is, there are these silly mandates, these silly things that I have to do that take up all of my time, energy, and focus. Instead of me focusing on the students, I'm trying to figure out what my school leader wants me to do. So even there, from a, a mindset perspective, a mind share, I'm giving part of my brain up to what am I supposed to be doing right now? Or kind of this internal, why do I have to do this? This is dumb. What I want to focus on is my kids. But we have so many school leaders out there that are making these requirements. And sometimes it's a lack of, of confidence in themselves. Sometimes it's this, you know, I want to make sure I'm doing what I think is best or maybe mandates from above. It just leads to teachers being miserable at school. Yeah, that's beautifully said, you know, and, and I, I lit up a little bit like a candle there when you said, you know, what the teachers want to do is attend to the students. And, and Ryan puts it this way. I love the way he says it. Um, he's a principal of his school. And he says, well, I can either have the teachers attend to me and my mandates, or I can have them attend to the students, but I can't have both. If they're paying more attention to what I want, then they're naturally taking their eyes off what the students need and what they want to do with the students. And what we should be doing with our teachers is making them feel like, listen, you guys are the pros. We want to help you be pros. Our job here is to back you up. And if we all have mandates, let's go hit them together as opposed to me bringing in new mandates or layered mandates to force you to do things. And I have to say, I think it has to do with leadership courage, uh, you know, leaders and, uh, you know, people in, uh, who lead schools and their level of courage. But I think it also is the system's kind of rotten. You know, you, it takes a lot of guts um, on a real fundamental level to say things like, you know what, the state wants us to do it. We can be creative about how we do this. Um, you know, I think because then you're putting your reputation on the line and you just think, you know, should I do this or should I cover my butt? Right. Because it's my neck on the line. Um, and so so there's a you know, it's kind of a rotten in Denmark situation sometimes. I mean, I can't blame too many administrators for playing the game the way they do. Sure. A couple of chapters stood out to me, one being Le Big Mac which of course is the French of the Big Mac, it talks about not treating everybody the same, right? We're not Big Macs. And a Big Mac in New York is the same as a Big Mac in France, which you, you illustrate that beautifully. But the chapter is really about empowering your people, allowing them to use their own professional judgment. So what we just talked about, this idea of you can attend to me or you can attend to your students. Another chapter that spoke to me was the Marathon Fan chapter, which is about stepping back and watching and truly appreciating all the amazing work from your amazing teachers. And again, those are the kinds of things that you explain in this book. And it's not PLCs, it's 
it's literally step back and watch in amazement how your teachers are, they're navigating 35 kids in a classroom, 135 kids per day. They're navigating behavior management with instruction, with differentiation. Like there's so many amazing things happening. But again, we have so many administrators that are treating this like a Big Mac and a one size fits all. Everybody must do this. It's again, frustrating for teachers. Well said. The system, I think it's frustrating for everyone. The system is built so that we can replace professional discretion with mandates and rules. And, and, and we all agree to this devil's bargain, basically, you know, it, whether we do it uh, you know, externally or tacitly, because it's the best way to stay, say, to stay safe. If I, if I say my hands are tied here, look, the rules are what the rules are, then I don't have to make any decisions. And, and there's, been, uh, there's been this slow turning over the last 30 years in education where we've, we've said, listen, let's actually take all decision-making away from teachers. Let's articulate all of the curriculum. Let's make it transparent so everybody knows. And the current movement now and the current movement will be replaced by something else in five years. It's, it's parent control, right? So let's make sure we actually make the curriculum laid out in such a way so that people know a year ahead what kids are learning in their math class in March so that here I am in August, I can, if my students in a class, I can be like, well, what are they doing in March? And we, without interrogating this, this seems to make sense. But what it does, obviously, is it turns all the teachers into paint by numbers folks. And for any of them who, for example, are actually attending to their students, they then are stuck in a really tough tension of like, who do I pay attention to? And this is the whole, do I pay attention to the mandates or do I pay attention to the students? And the answer should be both, but the mandates will always win. They will always win. Now to the second piece, you know, this piece about the marathon fan, I invite principals and department chairs and superintendents to touch back into the awe, A-W-E, awe that they have for students. Now, when we see a six-year-old or seven-year-old um, do something very gracious or speak very eloquently or maybe draw something or like shoot a basket that goes in. We're genuinely pretty impressed. And you show me a six or seven year old who like picks up a violin and starts playing it well, people, their jaws on the floor and they're like, can you believe this kid, right? How amazing. And we have that same reaction when we see like maybe an 11 year old or a 12 year old go out of their way to help another kid. Like maybe they carry their books home every day because this kid maybe is in a situation where he or she can't carry their bags. And so this kid just self-volunteers and doesn't. We're like, wow, you know, isn't Joey a wonderful kid? And I say, all right, you know that awe. That awe is beautiful. Now apply that awe to your teachers. Like it, to what extent do you have capacity to be in awe of your people? And that's what the Marathon fan's about. I love watching marathons. Listeners, if you haven't watched a marathon in person, I know it sounds like you're watching paint dry, but I'm going to tell you right now, and this is one of the few guarantees you're going to get maybe today or this week or the next month, you will well up with tears. You might, it might not break. You might not start tearing and the tear might not roll down your cheek, but your eyes will well up. I'm telling you it's going to happen because when you watch people run 26 miles <laughs> for no good reason but to push themselves and you're standing there watching them, you're cheering for them. You, you can't help yourself because you're like, I'm cheering for humanity right now. And I think when you see leaders of any sort in any field, but especially in schools, look that way towards their people, you're going to build a system where people reach more, they take more risks, they trust each other more, they trust themselves more, and they grow, they thrive. It's that word thrive, which we overuse so much. People thrive when people believe in them. 
that awe, I think, is the key. We should be in awe of each other. Humans are amazing. <laughs> you know, we do incredible things and, and we forget it. We take it for granted. We get caught up, you know, et cetera. So, so that's the marathon fan. And I invite people to bring it to whatever field they're in, let alone education. Yeah. And kind of similarly, you describe initiatives, I think, beautifully as well. In this chapter, you talk about how the school leader identifies a problem, you know, learn, goes to a conference, learns something new and says, oh, this is a new flashy thing. I have to implement this. So they go back to their, their classroom professional development. And what you'll find is, and I, this is totally true, new teachers take notes. New teachers are writing furiously. They're looking around. Veteran teachers either completely ignore it or they voice their, how grumpy they are about something new that's happening. So you, you've mentioned before that supervisors find themselves in kind of this tug of war between being a mentor and being a compliance officer. And we've talked about this a little bit. The latter compliance typically wins much of the detriment of the people in the system. So what advice do you have for school leaders that don't want to give up that control? Because at the end of the day, when school numbers come out, student achievement numbers come out, behavior comes up school board conversations, they're the ones that are in charge. How do you, how do you broach that topic with a school leader that kind of has this control mentality with here's what your people actually need? Great question. It's probably the most important question in leadership development that you can ask. So spot on. Um, and it's a tough one. You know, the shortest answer I can give is this. Self-awareness is the key, right? You start there. If you are a control person, call it out, right? We, we invite people to use this model of fire in which we say, identify in yourself your fears, right? Your interests, what you care about, your responsibilities, and then your experiences. And like actually map it out for yourself. And, and, and fire is kind of a corny acronym, but we couldn't come up with a better one that actually covered more ground. I actually hated that it was cute. But fire, use it. Fears, interests, responsibilities, and experiences. And, and learn from yourself as much as you can. That's, that's starting point one. Then two is this, and this is straight leadership game, and I, I suspect you're going to like this, Eric. You either realize or you don't realize something that Napoleon spoke about elegantly. What Napoleon said is, there's not a general in my army who knows more about what's going on in the battlefield than a soldier. Now, just that insight... That's a truth. That's not an opinion. That's the deal. We talk about you got to shrink the distance between the people making decisions and the conditions on the ground, no matter what job you have. And in fact, the greatest problems in any field happen as that chasm grows. In administration, generally speaking, very few administrators are in the classroom. And when they are, then they're attending to their kids. If you are as an administrator, and this is very practical, if you, would, if you observe a teacher nine times in a year, then you're basically seeing 1% of their practice. Think about that for a second. Now, why is that the case? Because this teacher is doing somewhere to the, somewhere to the tune of 900 hours of class time per year. And you can you know, run that through your algorithm any way you want. You're going to come up with that number. It's somewhere between 650 and 900, 1,000 hours. You'll have to see him 20 times to see him 3% of the time. It's, it's a fool's errand to try to control something that you cannot control. So that's the next place. So then what do you have to do instead? Well, you've got to go for influence because control will fall flat and it just will. They're, you're just not around enough. You have too many teachers to watch. You've got too many things to attend to. So at some point or another, your attempt to, you know, it's the dog and the bone. 
you're going to drop the bone in the water and have nothing, you know, when you try to have both bones. You, you can only do so much. So that's, the, that's, the, that's where we go. It's kind of a two-pronged thing. And honestly, Eric, I see people fight with it and they're just like, they struggle. And I say, this might take you some time to buy into, but uh, these are these them defects, you know, like that's what it is. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm just asking you to look at what's there, you know? Yeah, yeah. So other fools, it's it's filled with just fascinating vignettes that illustrate the leadership concepts. So if I'm a struggling principal, and that's what I'm hearing from these teachers again, it comes back to leadership. If I'm a principal, I have the self-awareness to say, we have a problem, probably starts with me, or at least I need to be a catalyst in whatever way we can solve this problem. What where do I start? What what's a good beginning point for me to say, okay, I've identified we have a problem. I want to do, I want to serve our teachers better. Where can I begin? Yeah, that's an amazing question. I think you've got to rally your team, right? I think a lot of us uh, toggle back and forth in our heads about like, what's my job as a leader? So if we're going to take the principal, I mean, the principal is a singular position. It's an inherently lonely position. The only lonelier job in education, of course, is the superintendent of schools. Um. You know, and that's because you just don't have a peer, right? And that, and the hierarchy is always in play at school, as it is probably in most workplaces. Um, you know, so what you want to do first is you got to start with your team. And by that, I mean your leadership team. Now, your leadership team can be the nominal leadership team. Those are your commissioned officers, right? Those are your department chairs, your assistant principals, um, your deans, anybody who's got a title. They tend to be people who aren't in the classroom. And then you need to map out who are my field sergeants, my field generals, who are the leaders in this classrooms? Because there's always lead teachers, whether we identify them and not or not. And in fact, some of the research that Ryan and I are uncovering right now is that identifying them as lead teachers actually can, can rob them of some of their influence. Actually keeping them without a title can actually really work. Because these are the social leaders. They've got a finger on the pulse of what's going on. If you've got a union in your school district, it, it's really helpful to create you know, some sort of relationship with somebody who's in a leadership position there. And your first goal has got to be to say to your team, I have blind spots and I'm never going to get rid of them. And the only chance I have is for you guys to help me see things. Now, some of what they're going to share with you is going to come through a political lens and you're going to have to make sense of that. But that's the job, baby. I mean, your principal, it's a political job, you know, but what you need to do is I think start there. You need to get an understanding of what they're into and apply this fire to them so you know where they're coming from. And Ryan and I always invite people to recognize that you bring a bias. We talk about bias. We talk about things like confirmation bias, maybe one of the most important and challenging biases to recognize in ourselves. But there's actually something else in play here. And this is, do I like these people? <laughs> and and this is when Ryan and I rely on our good friend, Abraham Lincoln, 16th president, and uh, and a guy that I, I'm not even kidding you. I, I basically talk to him every couple of days in my head. And, and here's what Lincoln said. Lincoln said, I do not like that man. I should get to know him better. And the idea is start with, I can like everybody on my team. That sounds crazy. I know it does. But that's the job of being a great leader. The great leaders say, I don't like you. That means I need to spend more time with you and figure out how you tick. Because you know what? You're somebody's kid. 
you're somebody's sibling, you're somebody's spouse, you might be somebody's parent, you're somebody's best friend. You know, if you were to check out today by some terrible event of tra a tragedy, there'd be people there who'd be talking about how great you were. It's my job to find out what's great in you and then connect into it, build trust with you so that I can then build you up as well. The best leaders are looking to make other leaders stronger. Those are the super players. That's what you want to do. That's step one. Find out your team and then try like heck to like them all. And you will. You'll find things to like about them. You will if you try. I was reading the book and I couldn't help but think about some teachers that I connected with like, oh, I, when you think about, you know, trying to make friends out of people that you don't necessarily like, not saying I didn't like them, but there were some that I had better relationships with others. And it was entirely my fault is because you, you gave a couple of examples. Maybe they don't talk the same way that you talk. And there's this instant disconnection at such a surface level. Like who cares how they talk? That, that doesn't matter. That's a human being. And it's our job as leaders to be the one that rises up. And maybe they don't like you. Maybe the teacher does not like you as a colleague, as an administrator. That doesn't matter. We need to be the ones that rise up and establish those relationships and be proactive in getting to know people. So there was a little bit of, of me self-reflecting, thinking, man, that's something else I would have done better. If I were to go back and, and be an administrator again, I would do that better next time. That's ah, beautiful, man. I'm sure you did great. It's it's part of what's fun for me and Ryan is that because I'm still a teacher, right? And I want to stay in the classroom. Um, you know, he and I have some pretty rich conversations because he sees things that I don't see and and I see things that he doesn't see. And so it's really easy to look in the rearview mirror and go, what could I have done better? But I'm sure you were I'm sure you were killing it. This is also an opportunity for me to talk about why we called the book Otherful. And I don't know if this is preempting one of your questions, but this is the perfect time to hit it. And it's it's so I've always like I've always rankled against the notion that good teachers and good leaders are selfless. I, I actually think it's terrible. I think the notion that you're supposed to you're supposed to somehow deny yourself or even destroy yourself in order to be a leader is actually I think it's a it's a deep misunderstanding of what great leadership's about. But I understand that that's the language we use. So we took the word selfless and we decided to make it into its photographic negative. And we got other full. And the idea is knowing other people and caring for other people and making room for other people is actually something that fills us up. It makes us stronger. And some of the most powerful people that you know who are your age or especially older. And I mean, if you ever meet anybody who's in their 60s, 70s, or 80s, and they're a rock star and people are like, oh, can you believe this lady? She's 82. Look at her. I promise you part of what makes her move is her love of other people and her admiration for people of all ages. That That's the special sauce. And I honestly think the future of educational training and in, I'm sorry, in leadership training in the next 10 years, it's going gonna, it's gonna to angle hard into human relationships in which we truly look for what's great in each other because that's the leveling up. That's the secret, the special sauce, I should say, in successful companies, teams. It's the deal. It's people on the team feel like somebody's seeing me and thinks I'm great. And it's the same thing great teachers do with students. It's the same thing that happened in the head of everybody who's listening to this with one teacher or coach they had. Somebody looked at them and said, you know what, kid? You're really good at X, Y, or Z. And the kid went like, me? You see you see me? And then suddenly they went to the next level. You know, that's great coaching. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of the employee experience, I think, is a big part of that. So employee experience is talked about in business all the time. Simplest definition is, what is it like to work here? That is the employee experience. 
And what people in the business world are learning is it's not about employee engagement. It's not about employee satisfaction necessarily. It's this whole, it's this next level up, which is I know, like, and trust the people that I work with. My needs, expectations, and wants are understood and are being met. And as an organization, we understand our people's expectations, needs, and wants, and we are designing explicitly and intentionally experiences for them to connect with themselves, to connect with others, connect with the organization, connect with their role. Like, so that's that next level up. So I, I'm with you on what the next level of leadership is. It's people-centric leadership. And a huge part of that is knowing your people inside and out as much as possible having relationships such that they're willing to share their expectations, needs, and wants with you. And then from a leader, listening to that. And then if and when you do make a pivot, you go back and reference, this is what we collected from you. This is what we heard. This is what you shared. This is why we're making these pivots. Like until we do that, we're going to be stuck in the same environment that we're in right now. And we're in it. You know, people love to talk about how schools haven't changed in 100 years. And people will talk about desks and rows and chalkboards. Corporate structure hasn't changed in 100 years either. You know, I mean, <laughs> our CEOs are no different than the Andrew Carnegie's um, of the past. You know, we are living in an old time and the new time is exactly what you're talking about. We like to say we keep asking for our the people we lead to buy into our vision, to buy into us. Did they buy in? It's actually the reverse. We have to buy into our employees. They have to feel like we've bought into them. When they are like, no, this person is like bought into me, that's when the employees go, oh, these guys actually care about me and they're with me. We're working together. We're collaborating on my success and their success. That's the game, baby. That's how you build awesome companies. And what's the alternative right now? There, there are no, there's no teachers to hire. I mean, there's nobody coming out, 33% less college enrollees now going into higher education and trying to become teachers. So what's the alternative? We can we can maintain status quo, which is mandates and directives, or we can turn our attention and focus on the teachers who then provide the student experience. So just like customer support and business, you know, the customers are important, but your employees are more important because they provide the customer experience. It's the same thing in education. Student experience is important, it's the teachers that provide the student experience. Yeah, Richard Branson says, says it, I think, as cleanly as you can. Customers don't come first. Clients don't come first. Employees come first. And then they take care of your customers and clients. And when we get that model in education, I, I think it's going to be exciting. And it's going to happen. I, you know, I, I'm not a sky is falling guy. Um, a, it doesn't align with my belief system. If, if that isn't coming across, that's the deal, baby. I'm here for it. Um, but I also think better things are going to come because we're breaking this thing about as much as it can break. And there's a lot of people who still believe. And this is it. It's what you're talking about. The employee experience, I think, is probably at the heart of the future of happiness in our culture because we're not getting away from working. It's not. I mean, all the dreams that that was going to happen, I think, have shown um, people don't want to not work anyway. This is why my grandpa refused to go to a retirement home. You know, he was driving a tractor. He was helping people out. He was bagging groceries. He would do anything, right? We don't want to stop working. So the work experience, the employee experience, I think is going to be a part of the heart of the human experience in the next century. Yeah. So a couple more questions here, Mike. You, you've traveled the world. You've spoken with thousands of educators. You've been on some of the biggest stages 
from a, a school leadership and employee experience perspective, what are we getting right in education right now? And where do you think we're most missing the boat? Well, what we're getting right is we're having many more conversations about what is now being called SEL, the social and emotional learning experience. We're talking a lot about diversity and equity and inclusion. We're having the best conversations we've ever had in education about identifying students as people fully as themselves. And this includes everything in the LGBTQ movement. It also includes the great conversations we're having about the impact of ableism, um, the great impact of uh, of what I like to call white centrism on our conversations about history. I know that that's a that's a that's a hot button for some people. For me, even to say that out loud, but we're actually having conversations in which you know, sure, you know, like a Columbus Day is a perfect example of it. You know, I mean, this is a political uh, bromide. People, you know, they find themselves getting sucked into one side or the other. But the fact that we're having the conversation to me is a huge step forward. And yes, is it a comfortable conversation? Is it even a clean conversation? No. And are people on both sides, so-called, saying dumb things? Absolutely. But we're having the conversation. So, so that's a really big thing. I think another great thing is, is uh, technology is really democratizing education in a way that I think is is moving the needle in a way that we've never seen. I think it's part of the reason why there's been such a political pushback. I think it's why we're having so much talking about parental control, so-called, and tighter mandates on schools, because the kids are teaching themselves, which, by the way, is the way it should be. Um, you know, it, there is no such thing as teaching. There's only people who help others teach themselves. You know, your, your infants teach themselves to walk and talk. No matter what you try to do, it doesn't make it happen faster. There's no system. That, and by the way, you teach yourself how to parent too, don't you? There's, there's no, if there were a system that taught you how to parent and it worked well, we'd all be using it, right? So, so those are the upsides. I think that's what we're doing really well. We're actually, a, we're, we're making room. There's a lot of teachers on the ground, a lot of principals on the ground who are making room for this technological movement. Um, I'm loving to see that finance, uh, financial education is starting to slowly trickle its way into more schools. So overdue. And there's finally, this is my last piece, I think what we're doing well, is we're, we're starting to bring back what we used to call vocational skills. We're talking more about how uh, academic uh, learning doesn't have to be limited to, you know, the main four, which is, of course, English, social studies, math and science. We're expanding it out and we're starting to talk about kids getting into professions and careers out of school that don't necessarily require a college degree. And I think we're having better conversations. We still got miles to go, but but we're having them. What we're getting wrong. Well, I mean, it's open up any, uh, you know, website news um, that you want to. Teachers are feeling terrible, you know, and and this precipitous drop of uh, education uh, teachers and uh, rising teachers, people studying to become teachers is no joke. And it's a nightmare. Moreover, the divide between the haves and the have nots continues to grow in this country. And this lands firmly in two places in education and healthcare. You kind of can't escape it in those two spots. So, you know, um, we need to get a little more serious. And by a little more serious, I mean, we need to get a lot more serious about how we're funding education in this country. Um, and we need to make it a little bit less of a dirty word that it's worth paying for. And that's hard. It's really, really hard. I mean, it's, we're, we're so enmeshed in politics right now that it's hard to have any of these conversations without talking about the political element. So, you know, I mean, I think that's how I would ra- that's how I would circle it up. I appreciate that. So what, what's one action or strategy you hope every school leader takes from this conversation today to create a positive employee experience? What's one thing school leaders can take away? You know, I want to just say it's about 
attend to the people who work for you with the eyes of a, um, a coach who's rooting for their player. And I'm going to go one more on this. We call it the, grand, the grandparent maneuver. Grandparents love grandkids in a way that parents wish they loved their own kids. Um, <laughs> grandparent, you know, the, the grandparent maneuver is, hey, look, decriminalize some of this. The kid's doing their best. You know what I mean? Like, don't go, don't yell so loud at the kid when he, when he, when he blows it, right? The grandparent reminds us to, to go for a ride in the car and look out the window and talk, to take them for ice cream, you know? That, so take your, take your people for ice cream, whatever that means to you, right? And listen to them, talk less, listen more. What's one celebration that you've recently experienced you want to share with uh, the audience today? Things are going well for us at Team Otherful, but uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is um, our audio book, which is about to drop, and we're really excited about it. Ryan and I are both trained actors, so this is not this is not your usual audio book. Um, I think you're, I think people are going to enjoy reading it. I think hearing it in the voices of the guys who wrote it is actually going to be a blast, and the people we've shared it with are like, "Yo, you guys, this is going to be great." So, uh, and I and I also just wanted to shout that. Um, just coming back to school, you know, I don't want to sound too corny, but coming back to school is a win. You know, we, he and I have done a bunch of things. We're doing another full conference this summer. This summer. We're, we're working on that right now. I uh, can't announce it yet because we don't have it lined up. But just coming back to school has felt like a really big win because, you know, we're still doing the work, man. We're still showing up. Right, right. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way of them doing that? And I'll include this in the show notes as well. Well, you can find me on any platform as Mike Kleba, M-I-K-E-K-L-E-B-A. And that's Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, otherful.com is our website. Um, and that'll give you a little insight into what we do. Um, and also it'll give you an opportunity to reach out to us if you want to talk to us about coming to you or training your people or even doing some virtual meetings with you. And then of course on Amazon, you could check out our book there. Um, and that's just under otherful. You just type that into any search browser, otherful, one word, one L, you're going to find us. Yeah, that's, that's genius marketing because you can't find anything else that deals with otherful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah, we spent a lot of time on that one, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time. We appreciate what you're doing in the education world, you know, not just for your students, but other leaders and other teachers across the country as well. So keep up the good work, man. We appreciate it. Eric, my pleasure. And shout to you, man. I love what you're doing. And it was a delight and an honor to be here with you. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.